0: Well, it's a real privilege for me to be sitting here today with Dr. Joe Boot, the Reverend Dr. Joe Boot, who is a native of Britain, but who now lives in Canada. Where do you live in uh, Canada? Is, is it Toronto or Toronto?
1: Uh, to, well, to Canadians, it's Toronto.
0: Uh, now, your surname is Boot. Yes, sir. Has anyone ever made a joke with you about your surname being Boot? Oh yes, plenty. Okay, because I thought with a name like Boots, I didn't want to put my foot in it.
1: <laughs> of course, put you see, you see that. Did you get? what I see what I did there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. Now you have a certain accent there. Now where did you come from when you lived in England? So I
1: was born actually in the London area in Bexley, um, but my uh, parents moved fairly quickly to Wiltshire. So I grew up in the southwest or in the west. But my uh, parents moved fairly quickly to Wiltshire so I grew up in the southwest or in the west country really just, just outside of Bath okay. uh, in a little town called Devizes Okay. Um, uh, devises Marlborough, Cheltenham—they're all—they're all very close to Bath, just in in, mm-hmm. in Wiltshire. There. Mm-hmm. That's right. So you know
0: so that's William Tyndale Country, Gloucestershire—is that sort of
1: around there? Not that far. Okay. You know, it's moving. It's in that. It's in the direction towards you know towards Bristol. It's out,
0: to me. It's outside London. They're all close yeah. to each other. You know, Bath, <laughs> <Yeah>. Manchester, Glasgow. <laughs> it's all, all in the same neighborhood. <laughs>
1: yeah. It's uh, that that. that
0: now you are now living in Toronto, where you are the pastor of a church called Westminster Chapel. Was that was mm-hmm. it your idea to? name the church Westminster Chapel?
1: Yes it was um, and for two reasons. The first was my desire to root this new church plant in confessional evangelicalism. You know the Westminster Confession is one of the great reformed evangelical confessions of faith and so that was one motivation and the other was um, my deep appreciation for Dr Martin Lloyd-Jones and Westminster Chapel. Mm. Did you used to attend the chapel at all? No, but uh, I was involved in, a, in an Anglican restart uh, church plant in, um, in Fulham uh, in my 20s. And actually, one of Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones' daughters attended our church oh, for a while. Okay. And uh, on, uh, I'll never forget, on one occasion, I was, I'd been speaking from the Book of Romans. Uh, and after a service, she came up to me and she said that you handled that text just as my father would have. You can imagine in you yeah. know, if you're a young preacher in your mid-20s, yes, yes, <laughs> to yes, be yes. told something like that was pretty encouraging that yeah, morning. Yeah yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. One of those rarely helpful encouragements. Uh, indeed. Yeah, 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 superb. So you've been in Toronto for uh, uh, 10 years, five years? I've been in uh, Canada for nearly 15 years right. now. And uh, so uh, initially I was serving uh, with Ravi Zacharias International Ministries and I lived just outside of Toronto. I'd gone there to to start Arzim Canada.
0: That is a man who has served the church in an extraordinary way, isn't it? Mm-hmm. The fact that, um, yeah, essentially you speak to people all over the world and Ravi Zacharias. Do you know that he is the most travelled person on Delta Airlines? He is the top guy to travel. But he says... When he travels into various cities, he always goes back to the same hotels because there he can he has got to know the staff, mm-hmm. service of often the small people. it sits well with the Bible and it sits well with perspective mm-hmm. uh, on church history. Now, um, yourself, how did you—you you, you came from a believing family, or how is it you came to hear the gospel?
1: Well, neither of my parents uh, grew up in what we would call um, evangelical or scripture believing, or even regularly church-going homes but both were converted in their 20s so i grew up in a christian home um, in my uh, younger days in you know in uh, up until about i think the age of 12 13 uh, my dad was working actually just in british telecoms but um, he ended up planting a church in devizes uh, with the assemblies of god so my uh, my early uh, churchmanship was in a small church plant in the uh, southwest of England uh, within the Assemblies of God. And I'm Mm. very grateful for the sense of vitality and spiritual Mm. life and dependence on the third person of the Trinity in our lives to fulfill the task of ministry that that kind of background instilled into me.
0: So you you remember growing up in a kind of pioneering church Mm -hmm. context, in which the gospel was made clear and it's something on which you
1: were, were feeding from a young age. Very much so, and uh, and it was also a context in which because we were so concerned with evangelism and reaching the community and impacting the town that there was, you know, one uh, street witness after, after um, a tent event, or, or or concert, or somebody carrying a cross through the town. I mean, you know, you name it, we tried it. Uh, you know, in terms of evangelism and and wor- and uh, working in the schools, and of course, I was in the local school with my three brothers, and uh, it was a stand up and be counted type of situation.
0: It, uh, one thing which is striking for London's church is is that people have get married and they'll have some children, and they'll think, well, you've got children by then, we'll we'll leave London now. Mm-hmm. And you think, uh, based on what? <laughs> based on, where does it say in the Bible when you have children, you need to move away from the city? Because yeah. I mean, it's almost like an axiom, you know? But mm-hmm. you do tend to find that um, people who, you know, well, if there is a hurricane, the safest place is
1: actually in the eye of the jolly thing. At the same time, one of the dangers for parents, um, pastors, uh, and, you know, church planters in that kind of setting is that we... Uh, forget that our first ministry responsibility is to our wife and children. So, uh, you know, I think, you know, Scripture is clear that, you know, if, if I preach to others and yet I myself, and I mean a man who does not provide for his own, mm. has denied the faith, Paul says, and is worse than an infidel. Mm. So we have to, and I don't think that provision is purely financial, I think we have to be seeking to provide spiritually for our children. So I think sometimes we can get so buried in the work of the gospel, in the ministry of the gospel, that our, and and if if that leads us into a place where we neglect our family, um, that can be detrimental and uh, we can uh, uh, see our children grow up resenting that and thinking that God is an absentee father. I think we have to be careful of that. But I, but I also think that um, the call is a, is, a, is a call on families. One of the people who, is, who has uh, ext-
0: this area in the centre of the city is very rich in church history. Across the road from here is Christchurch Greyfriars where Richard Baxter is buried. Mm-hmm. And of course when he arrives in Kidderminster you get a smattering of people going to the church. By the time he leaves, the majority, it is said, not only attend the church but are conducting family worship in the home. Mm-hmm. and that, that yes. seems to be a very powerful testimony and even a hundred years later when Whitfield visits Kidderminster, he can still see the fruit mm-hmm. and you think there's something uh there's something very beautiful of uh, the idea of, of fathers trying to take some sort of responsibility to encourage their families yes. in the gospel mm-hmm. which must start with fathers themselves being caught up in the gospel right I'd love to ask you something more also because on on this front because it it naturally develops into this question. I was fascinated hearing you speak recently about uh, places where you've seen breakthrough through prayer. Mm -hmm. And the question I want to ask is, it seems disappointingly consistent that people who have a good understanding of the doctrines of grace, who have a strong understanding of the Reformation truth, which says, I have the access to the Father Mm -hmm. that the Son has, because I'm in the Son, are not known for taking up that access and mm. running into his presence and crying out to him. Yeah. You often find people who don't have a good understanding of that, they, they come to him and they, they have all kinds of peculiar theories, but at least they come to him. Mm-hmm. But it was, I was struck to hear you talking and say how you broke through in prayer on various issues. Did you learn
1: to pray around your father? Did you? What did you where have you learned lessons in prayer? Um, I would hear my dad You know, very early in the morning Um, He'd generally be up at 5.30 because uh, with the church plant, the church plant couldn't pay him enough to support the the family so he would work as a postman as well as pastor the church. So he'd get up very early on the early rounds, um, come back for some breakfast after the first round, go out again for the second round and and deal with the life of the church in the afternoons and evenings. Um, So I would hear him praying downstairs um, from very early in the morning. And he prayed loud sometimes as well, um, you know, daily. And uh, I remember uh, as a boy, I don't know, 12, 13 years of age, beginning to be attracted to that way of life, that, that the desire to be in prayer um, before God and to do devotions in, in that way. So he, he told the story, actually, I think at my wedding of how... Uh, Uh, it was a small boy, I would come downstairs, you know, 6, 6.30 um, before school, um, with my Bible and a book, a little book called Looking Into the Bible, and just sit there. Uh, I would sit there in the front room, as he was now uh, praying with his head between two cushions usually, uh, with his face in an armchair, and I would sit, and I would hear him pray, and I would read my Bible, and I would say some of my own prayers, and that's part of certainly part of what touched my young life and formed me even in ways that I would not have perceived or, or really understood at that point. Mm-hmm. And so certainly in the things that God has, by grace, um, enabled me to do over the years and the things he's called me to, uh, in each instance, there have been uh, times of, of necessary uh, a breakthrough in prayer of, of just prostrate, humbling oneself on your knees before God to save and to deliver and to answer and to um, turn up uh, mm. in a special way. Mm. Now I, I, I feel continuously the, all the pressures of, of, of ministry and of writing demands and of speaking demands and uh, I'm not suggesting that prayer isn't an ongoing battle uh to to give oneself to to take time uh aside and not to be immediately buried in the urgent the emails the communications and the study that you have to do and that's a very easy trap to fall into as a as even as a minister and as perhaps especially as a minister Um, that um, studying for sermons replaces devotions and Mm. Mm. reading can uh, easily replace meditation on god's word and prayer Mm. but um as a church, we have tried to um, make a priority of uh, prayer—corporate prayer, personal prayer, family devotions—and it certainly has its impact. Mm. Um, it's uh, it, it's it's part of what I'm convinced, dr- you know, drives the life of the church. Amen. We can always live like um, it's
0: almost like you pray just sinners' prayer, and I, yeah, I prayed the sinners' prayer. Now I now I'll deal with it. Mm-hmm. And he says, no, 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 I, 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 didn't, I didn't come and suffer so that you could manage. Mm-hmm. I wanted to, to draw you into what I have with my Father, where I mm-hmm. come straight to him. And what the Father draws is what he has with the Son. And we have it in the fullness of the Spirit. We, draw, we, are, mm-hmm. we have the access, and we can come to him and know his faithfulness. And it's, uh, yeah, I heard someone say, again, it's not Bible but I thought it was quite suggestive. They said, when I pray, coincidences happen. Mm -hmm. I thought it was quite an interesting way of putting it because um, I I think many of us will know that familiarity of that kind of dynamic. Mm -hmm. Now, we at Christian Heritage London, we have this unusual privilege of being, we're sitting in a building which uh, Samuel Wesley was curate in. John Wesley has his evangelical conversion across the road, you know, um, Ridley, Latimer, Cranmer were tried down there, and Baxter's buried there, and uh, Elizabeth Fry and prison reform down there, and then Tinder, Wilberforce, Smith, Newton. We love to tell these stories of these people. And it's not just because we are peculiar. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I believe the Bible tells us, remember those who have gone before mm-hmm. you. Yes. Um, now, uh, who are people who have influenced you, mm-hmm. either from your own life or from church history, and what have they encouraged you in?
1: How many am I allowed? <laughs> um, <laughs> Go for it. There's been a few that, uh, you know, there's been, of course, many. And uh, a few particularly stand out. Maybe I'll just mention four and then focus in on, uh, and then just comment more extensively on two. The work of Augustine um, proved very important to me uh, at a very foundational point in my Uh, life and ministry in my early days in um, Canada. Uh, I found it just incredibly helpful going back to uh, the confessions and the city of God and the concerns of a church father who was also an apologist, who had civilizational concerns in mind, not just what we might call today narrow apologetic questions in mind like, you know, does God exist and is Jesus the only way to God and what about morality? Um, Augustine was grappling with whole civilizational questions and the whole story the whole you know the city of God from the fall of the angels right through to the uh, the marriage supper of the Lamb uh, is his concern in explaining the meaning of the gospel and so that was uh, he, he was formative for me and of course his confessions are so very rich uh, for any Christian um, to, to read. Um, I've been blessed and, and, and benefited hugely by just reading people like Charles Spurgeon and, 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 and Lloyd-Jones in my, in my younger years as well. But Augustine uh, was something, something foundational yeah. for me there. Yeah. And then uh, that led on for me to um, uh, the, the discovery of uh, some of the best of the Dutch reformed philosophers and uh, theologians. And I would say probably that the, the influence on my thinking has been greatest there. Uh, so that sort of grounding in the Augustinian tradition, which of course leads on to a Calvinistic, I think, uh, uh, framework for, uh, for, for a biblical thought, um, and I, that's what I think it is, it's just scriptural thought, mm-hmm. um, uh, led me to, um, in particular, uh, Cornelius Van Til, mm-hmm. Um, who was a Dutch American um, uh, philosopher and Christian apologist, uh, taught at Westminster? And, uh, and also, uh, in particular, Herman Doyerverd, who was another um, great uh, Reformed Christian philosopher. Uh, and I'll come back to him in just a moment. And, and the, the influence that those men had, Van Tillen Doyerverd, had on another uh, Armenian. Uh, not an Armenian, an Armenian-American theologian called um, R.J. Rushduni, who um, really helped me think through and grapple with the role of the whole of Scripture, not just the red letters, not just the bits that uh, Christians like and tend to focus on, but the totality of God's word revelation as it speaks into all of life. Um, But the root of all of that, um, uh, for me, was in, I was actually speaking up in the north of England, and uh, to, to sort of put some of this in context for you very quickly, I'd, I'd, um, I'd, I'd discovered the Puritans in seminary uh, through one particular professor in, in Birmingham Christian College, it was then known as Birmingham Bible Institute, and, uh, and, and I discovered, that was the first place I really encountered and discovered the, these men called the Puritans. Uh, And I remember being quite resistant initially to uh, their thinking, Um, uh, but then discovering really actually through reading many of the sermons of Charles Spurgeon, the the depth and the riches of this gospel of grace uh, to an extent that I hadn't fully appreciated before. It was just, it was a going deeper. It was a going further in and further up, if you will. Mm. Um, And... uh, uh um, in that early discovery uh, of these, these men, I remember beginning the task of Christian apologetics quite naturally. I, I wanted to uh, share the gospel and defend the faith. This had begun for me back in school when I started a Christian union and I was trying to share the gospel with schoolmates. And uh, it was other people that began saying to me in my early 20s, you're an apologist. I didn't actually really know what one of those... Was I mean you know Pentecostals in those days we didn't we didn't speak about Christian apologetics what's that um, and um, I was in a you know a, actually a, an evangelical seminary and people began to say to me that uh, that you're an apologist and actually in, in my early twenties uh, there were guys like J. John actually the Anglican evangelist who uh, who was a huge blessing in my life personally is he remains a very dear friend who really said to me, you know, you're an apologist, you're like a teaching uh, uh, evangelist. And uh, it was shortly thereafter through being in London and and there reading uh, more of the reformed men, I I stepped into apologetics. But what I found was that as I was doing the work of apologetics, I thought my apologetic method and thinking doesn't line up with my theology. There's not a mesh here. I, was, I found myself very dissatisfied with rationalistic, evidentialist modes of thinking and of apologetics that seemed to suggest or assume that the, uh, the, 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 the human being, the non-believer was some sort of neutral arbitrator of truth who could weigh up the facts for and against God. And uh, you know, if you could just stack up the weights sufficiently on one side, then that person would come through and recognize the force of your logic. And I thought, this doesn't, this doesn't fit, to my mind, um, with a, a scriptural understanding of the human condition, of our death in trespasses and sins, of our need for regeneration by the Holy Spirit. Uh, it seems to be... Of our depravity. Yes, of our depravity. It seems to be sort of exalting some sort of logical aspect of our thinking, as though that is independent of God or that man can stand on his own two feet without reference to God and decide about God and bring God into my court mm. of appeal. Mm-hmm. And, and I found myself very dissatisfied with this, And I, but I didn't really know what to do about it. Mm. And I was up speaking in the, in the north of England, um, and I'd finished my lectures for that day, and I was walking in a village. I was on my own. Uh, I, I wanted to just stop in for a little cup of tea and a piece, and a piece of cake and I did that, I was walking down the road, and I noticed a secondhand bookshop, and if I see a secondhand bookshop, I typically duck in mm-hmm. for a quick look. And as I was looking through the shelves, just a little thin book, just a little thin book caught my eye, and the spine said, Cornelius Van Til, Why I Still Believe. So I took that book out, and I sat there in the cafe and I read most of it. I, it hit me like a train wow. traveling at 120 miles an hour. Gracious. It, that is the way it struck me. It, it, I would say it was, it felt like almost like a second conversion experience. It was like putting on um, a coat that actually fitted. It was, mm. it was one of those sort of um, Eureka type of moments where suddenly these pieces came together where um, uh, what he was essentially arguing was look, without the triune God of Scripture as the foundation of everything, of all thought, of all human action, of creation, there is no true knowledge of anything. And uh, that began to rebuild my thinking, and I discovered um, uh, Herman Doyverd, who uh, comes from a very similar perspective, what we might call a transcendental argument for uh, the Christian faith and um, his brilliant uh, articulation of a scripturally rooted philosophy. Uh, and it was sort of Van Til who taught me apologetics. It was Doiverd who taught me really the meaning of culture. Um, and then it was um, those who picked up Van Til and Doiverd's thought, um, like um, one uh, scholar that I refer to quite frequently in my book, RJ Reshduni, who uh, began to help me flesh out what that looks like uh, in certain spheres, in various different spheres. And so mm-hmm. of course you can look at all of these types of people and you will always find things that you disagree with uh, in some of their thinking um, because n- no man is fully self-consistent and no, no man uh, represents fully the word of God. But I would say that, that, that um, those three or four individuals, I mean and Doiverd died back in 77, uh, was based in Amsterdam and has been called the greatest philosopher and don't forget a dedicated reformed christian the greatest philosopher holland ever produced not excluding spinoza mm-hmm. so uh um and this this discovery of this tradition I um, and of course rooted in men like abraham kuyper and other uh, theologians like herman Bavink, th- this was what really began to shape uh, my thinking and mm. inform my ministry and i'm mm. so it makes me so grateful for uh, for um, the Church of God and faithful men mm. and women of God. Oh, can we just pa- can yeah, I just pause sure. you there? Because I think you've
0: introduced a subject in apologetics, which many people wouldn't know there was such a, a distinction between apologet- apologists. There is a school of thought, which essentially seems to teach that given enough evidence, mm-hmm. anyone will believe.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And yet we find elsewhere the Bible seems to teach well but the person is sinful. And that doesn't just mean mm-hmm. they do sins. It means mm-hmm. that they are they are biased the wrong direction. They will not yeah. want to find, uh, they do not want to find mm-hmm. Christ. Yeah. And we are surrounded by people in churches. I mean, the pe- everyone listening to this will know someone who they will want to lead to Christ. And there is the frustration that you get all these things lined up. This will be we, what well, leads the person to Christ. That's right. We even got them along to church yeah. on that Sunday and that guy who was preaching and it was brilliant. And the guy just... Said, oh, yeah. uh, isn't this a nice building? And you think, but, 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 and you can get frustrated. With, yeah. And then you can start thinking, the preacher didn't do it right, and the, the conditions weren't right. The appeal was wrong. Or, yeah. yeah, and yes, exactly. Yeah. And there was something wrong with the man. And yeah, as it happens, the Bible seems to teach that you can give all the evidence you like. There is still a dichotomy which goes deeper than mm. the evidences Will yeah. enable because we are worshiping, <laughs> mm-hmm. and we are either going to worship the creature or mm-hmm. the creator. We are not neutral. Yeah. There is no one who is neutral. And as you say, Van Til is so extremely yeah. helpful on it. And yeah. the people who have drunk from him, especially yes. Keller in our time, yes. Mm-hmm. And you, and therefore, it doesn't matter how brilliantly you articulate
1: your philosophical thing; mm-hmm. the person may still not get it. First of all, it's it's a great deliverance from a sense of a false burden of guilt and responsibility, that somehow if I'd have said it differently, or if I'd have uh, put it differently, or if I'd have used this argument or that argument, then they would have come through. Right. So when we look at Scripture and, uh, uh, and the, the Pharisees, or, the, and those, or at least those who report the miracle to the Pharisees, when Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead, what's the result? Yeah, they all... plot to kill Jesus. <laughs> yes. um, when he heals the 10 lepers, one comes back to say thank you and in that incredible discourse uh in that um in that parable about uh, or some some would say more than a parable but i think it's a parable of of, of abraham and and lazarus what is it that abraham says he says if they have moses and the prophets if they don't believe moses Mm. they will not believe even if someone rises from the dead. Yeah, that's so important. I mean, it's so, it's there. It's right there across Scripture. Yeah. Jesus says it very plainly. He who wants to do the will of God will know whether the doctrine is true. Yeah, yeah. That was that clash that I was telling you about, that it could just didn't make sense to me. Now, I would add very quickly, um, Ben, that um, I'm not suggesting we can't use evidences. Yeah, amen. We can and we should talk about the wealth of um, uh, historical and uh, literary and archaeological and so forth evidences. That support the Christian gospel as long as we position them in the context of the Christian worldview that we're not coming at this as neutral bystanders who say God is the best um, is the um, uh, the Inference to the best explanation for the universe. Mm. I mean, God does not want to be known as an inference to the best explanation Right. He doesn't want to be known as some kind of, you know, most plausible theory, but he is the living God the creator of all things and uh, When I've done many debates on the existence of God over the years with philosophers and so forth I never disguise my starting points ever. I make it crystal clear and then I go after the self-destructive nature of their religious starting point. Wow. Men suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Amen. And uh, we have to bring the truth of, of the word to bear. And that's what has power. That's what the Holy Spirit uses.
0: Men suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Where'd you get that from? Romans chapter one. <laughs> go, straight out <laughs> of the Bible. Men suppress right. the truth in unrighteousness. It's important to recognize as a default position, as the basic position, kids yeah. at school, your colleagues, your fellow pupils, suppress the truth actively suppress the truth in unrighteousness i doing one of these podcasts with rico tice i asked him who it was from church history who had been such a blessing to him he immediately said john chapman Mm -hmm. the evangelist from australia because he said what god does with your sermon is up to god what is up to you is preach the gospel Mm -hmm. And what this, the wonderful fruit of what you've said, is it leaves us not to know every possible evidential Mm -hmm. argument. It does leave us to tell Mm -hmm. people the gospel. And I find it helpful what Keller says, where he used to think the gospel was the ABC, Mm -hmm. but he later learned the gospel is the A to Z. And you see gospel lack or gospel Mm -hmm. fruit in the entire world. You see it in your marriage, you see it in your home, you see it in the traffic Mm-hmm. You see it in what goes in your mind, and you either, the gospel is either the point to which you go, as, as Augustine says, we love, he loves you too little, he loves anything together with you that he does not mm-hmm. love for your sake. Mm-hmm. The gospel is that wonderful answer, which mm-hmm. we're being asked the question to yeah. the whole time. It's not, just, uh, it's not just, I've got the gospel, now I need to know this, 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 and this. Yes. So we need to know uh, that that's what the person needs to hear. Yeah, I think it's Leslie
1: Leslie Newbigin that says, um, in his commentary on John's gospel, how do you explain the beginning of all explanations? And this is the issue in terms of apologetic method and in terms of our starting point. How can we presume on the basis of something that's supposedly neutral or external? So you see, either God is the creator and sustainer and governor of all things, including my thoughts, including my ability to think, I should say, and the Mm. structure of all creation, including the invisible structures of creation, mm-hmm. or he's not. And so at root, uh, if I don't start with the beginning of all explanations, then I'm actually saying that something else is more ultimate, more basic, more foundational than God himself. And here it is in my own rationality. Mm. Uh, you know. You, you, there is nothing you can't go beyond the beginning of all explanations mm-hmm. he is christ is the alpha and omega mm-hmm. i was in southern california speaking some years ago and they came across that classic misunderstanding of apologetics that you're alluding to uh when a young couple took me out for dinner afterwards and they said um, so how long have you been an apologedi? um <laughs> i said <laughs> and, and people do Seem to think that you know apologetics yeah, 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 is like yeah, yeah. it's sort of Christian ninjutsu. You're oh, a kind man. of yeah, so true. You yeah. know, uh, you, or what you have to do is be on top of everything so that you can defeat your opponent. That's not what it's about. Amen. That's right. It's setting apart Christ as Lord in your heart. Amen. One Peter three fifteen. Amen. Um, That's right. Right out of the, and then it's right, right from there that he it talks about apologetics with the heart uh, with the religious root of the human. Being with the human person, which is the heart, the very core of who we are yeah. uh, as people, that's where it begins. And
0: is, is it not striking that characters like Augustine and, and many of these most effective mm-hmm. apologists have actually been people who exemplify in their character? They've been people who are serving churches. Mm-hmm. They're not. I remember reading uh, in Augustine's book on the Trinity. You know, here's the guy who writes the book on the trinity and he says i'm i consider myself a fool i don't mm-hmm. consider myself to understand this i yeah. think you're writing the most helpful he it there's
1: something he's not saying i have mastered this and yeah. what was augustine's famous starting point i believe in order that i may understand mm. yes our faith seeks understanding i think that was anselm later on but we 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 believe in order that we may understand and Calvin really continues that you know in book 1 of the Institutes where he makes clear that our knowledge of ourselves is really ultimately dependent on knowledge of God that's a wonderful point and and that's where that's where really you know people like Van Til and Dooyevert begin uh, that project and that's why those men have been so um, so influential for me and and really Ben it was like being given a new bible uh, with it, with new lenses to read scripture in, mm-hmm. and um, was life-changing for me. Really, had a rather disappointing debate with someone about. Um, I say, well, the most
0: difficult thing we have to deal with is sin, and this guy was saying, well, what sin? As though is that it? And this guy's an academic, you know, PhD guy. Is that it? I'm thinking, really, if you think you have mastered sin, mm-hmm. okay, you know, <laughs> let's get back to basics. Quite frankly, really, yeah. you think yeah. you've mastered that? Um, So, now, it's valuable for us to say that we're not saying we are throwing away our minds. We are actually, in recognizing what the Bible says is the truth about man and about God, we're actually using our minds as they should be. And the way we're doing apologetics is is an act of worship. Absolutely. Yeah. Now, this does bring us back to your your question of something of which you've written a number of times. It's the whole question of culture, Mm -hmm. because... Um, the, uh, I, and I think this is such a pertinent and important subject for our time because uh, we live in, in, in a city here where uh, if someone, someone can almost do the, the worst of crimes and if they say, but it's cultural, you think, ah, okay, well, it's cultural. <laughs> you can get away with stuff. But no one really knows what they mean by cultural. Right. And, uh, that, that's, uh, and, of course, we talk about the changes in the culture. What mm-hmm. do we mean by that? Mm-hmm. And you, through biblical and through theological inquiry, have come to definitions regarding culture, which go to the heart of gospel lack or gospel embracing. Mm-hmm. What, what is your definition of culture? What, what, what would you speak to us a little about how you find etymological roots and so on mm-hmm. to some of these things?
1: Well, I think... Um, first of all, what's, what's helpful to notice is that when you look at the New Testament, there is no um, artificial dichotomy between public and private, secular and sacred church, and um, uh, the Christian life and cultural life, I should say. Uh, in fact, many people will recognize this citation. For there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given to men by which you must be saved and the name Caesar Augustus. Uh And that was uh, published uh, by the emperor um, at the time and around the time where the apostles were first preaching the gospel. So in the ancient world, there was no sort of sense that political life, cultural life, and religion are separate, as though religion was over here in a silo, faith was over here, and this was all um, secular space where things just went their own way. No, the the emperor was the Pontifex Maximus, he was the high priest. And so the emperor cult was what the early church was confronting. Now, in Acts chapter 4, verse 12, Peter gets up and he says, For there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to men by which you must be saved in the name of Jesus. And uh, Acts uh, chapter uh, 17 says, Uh, And if you look in verses 1 through 7 there, it's crystal clear that the apostles were preaching and they were accused of preaching about another king, Jesus. And they were charged with um, violating, breaking the decrees of Caesar. So the preaching of the gospel was regarded as a socio-cultural and political offence because of the claim that was being made about Jesus Christ. There was no artificial separation of religion and politics and, and, uh, and culture and faith in people's minds. These were all intertwined and they are intertwined and they always have been. It's only um, the modern secularism, the modernity that tried to de-Christianize a, an essentially Christian space, uh, a Christianized um, uh, social order, where we've sort of developed this notion um, that you can have this non-religious sphere. That's just simply smuggled in a humanistic, And actually set of pagan assumptions, religious assumptions, to govern cultural life and displaced uh, Christianity. So there's no such thing as the disestablishment of religion. All cultures are uh, establishments of religion. It may be Islamic, it may be Hindu, it may be humanistic, it may be Christian, but all cultures, all social orders are the establishment. Some form of, of sovereignty, moral framework is being presupposed. So, when you think about culture, as you say, the word is completely overused, you know, there's business culture, there's arts culture, there's this culture and that culture. Uh, it has, There is a Latin root, of course, to the word, but when we think about modern English, we think about agriculture and we think about um, cults. Uh, so, you know, agriculture is about um, uh, cultivating uh, the ground to grow things. Um, and uh, we used to talk, previous generations spoke about um, people being, uh, my grandparents would speak about, oh, he's a very cultured man. <laughs> uh, he's, uh, he's, he's been very well cultivated. You know, there's this notion that by intellectual and moral tilling of the mind and heart, um, a type of civilization develops. So at root, and we see the religious, the, the religious um, uh, connotation here directly in our, in our continuous use of the word cult for various religious ideas, various cults. So it was Henry Van Taylor who I think best summarised the real meaning of culture as religion externalised. It's essentially our beliefs, our religious ideas applied. Um, um, In fact, we could even state it even in more basic terms than that, is that uh, the culture is the public expression of the worship of a people. Because culture is fundamentally about worship—is it emperor worship, is it worship of Allah, is it uh, worship of the pagan gods, um, is it uh, the worship of a particular philosophy or a particular idea or ideal? But at root, human beings are religious beings, um, and Paul is very clear in Romans one that we, there's only two forms actually. Ultimately, there are only two ultimate worldviews, two ultimate expressions of culture. One is the worship of the Creator, who is blessed forever or there is the worship of something within creation. And the reason there's a multiplicity of, of of idols and of false gods is that different things in creation have been absolutized and thought of or made the origin. And so you can do that with the rational or logical aspect of human experience. You can do it with the emotional or sensitive aspect of human experience, as the romantics dig. You can take almost anything in creation and try and give it the position of God. That's called idolatry in scripture. Mm, yeah. And because we worship uh, that, that the, either the creator or the creature, um, we will find that we begin to become like the thing that we worship also. Um, that's why scripture is very clear that for Christians, we're being conformed to the image of his son. We're being, we're being conformed to the image of Christ. Those who worship idols become like them, scripture says. So culture is the public manifestation of the faith or the religion of a people. Can you say that again? Culture is the public manifestation of the faith of of a a people. people. Yes.
0: Now that is profoundly significant. It's Mm -hmm. worth
1: repeating. It's a strong statement. And you see, well, you see immediately then, Ben, the connection that we've already drawn for our listeners between. a presuppositional, mm. foundational thinking about that, that ev- nobody's neutral, that everybody is coming from a fundamentally religious perspective. That's right. Everybody has a faith function in their life That's right. that directs and steers everything else. And that faith function can simply be set in the wrong direction. And when it is, when people look to that, to that origin for that source of explanation and meaning to a false God, to something in creation, everything else is skewed. So they're not sat there waiting for you just to give them the evidence so that they can say, oh, of course, yes, Jesus, wonderful. How do I become a Christian? They are religiously, mm. Paul is very clear, the Apostle Paul, hostile in their hearts That's right. to God. So That's they're right. enmity yeah. against God.
0: Yeah. And then if you go through Romans, uh, I once went through a kind of word study type way, you find that the fruit of that is Death. He calls it death. Right. And the people around whom we're living, who have put their hope in these temporary things, you see, they are living in death. That's right. And and then they say, and, and we have this enormous growth in antidepressants and all this stuff. Yes. People are living in death. It's we know death. the
1: solution to what's yes. going on here. We know the argument. We, we can tell you the parameters mm. of this argument. Well, Karen, the wages of sin is death. We tend to push that off, don't we? We push that off to the end of time. Um, yeah. You know, we say, oh, well, you know, that that's that. But actually, no, the wages of sin right now in people's lives mm. is death. Yes. You know, even at the, at, the, at the judgment at the beginning on our first parents. Dying, you will die wow. is the force of the text there. Dying, you will die. So, you know, we are dead in trespasses and sins. We need to, need to be made um, alive and quickened in the Lord Jesus. So... The reality is, is that um, we, when we turn from the light and life, which is Christ, we, we are then directed towards death and darkness. <laughs> and, and, and that uh, begins to shape a culture of death, because we are worshipping the creature rather than the Creator. Wow. So, uh, the way I try to articulate it with people, why, why this is so relevant to us and the preaching of the Gospel, is that no evangelical would deny that the gospel restores us to true worship. Worship. Who is worth Mm. everything? Who is uh, uh, is the source, the origin? uh, Who is the uh, the, the creator, the redeemer? Worship, our worship. Everybody would recognize as a Christian that, that, that the gospel restores us to true worship. Ah, well then, if culture is the expression of the worship of a people, if the gospel restores us to true worship, then the gospel restores us to true culture. Mm -hmm. Does that have a name in the Bible? The kingdom of God. The kingdom of God. The kingdom of God. There you go. Uh, And this is what Jesus tells us he's come to establish. It's not the gospel in some narrative, it's the gospel of the kingdom that he comes to preach and to proclaim. He pronounces Jubilee, the gospel of Luke at the beginning of his ministry, Uh, this great pronouncement of redemption, reconciliation, and he preaches and does the works of the kingdom of God. Mm. It's also, uh,
0: from another side, uh, there is a a weakness which shows, which considers the kingdom of God to be something to do with an ambience, almost like an atmosphere. Now, what's interesting is, of course, what you're describing is something which is living. Mm -hmm. And as a sense, you you can't, who could, It's difficult to define something, in a sense, which is lively, which is vivified. You're not describing a a set system of rules, perhaps, that might be a a, a distinguishing marker. You're describing something which is is, uh, organic, perhaps, might be a, a distinguishing marker. Now, but people who are caught up with this A to Z gospel, Mm-hmm. who see the way Paul uh, commands people. He doesn't say, mm-hmm. as it says in Leviticus, he says, remember Christ, mm-hmm. remember Christ, remember Christ. Mm-hmm. What do we know about Christ? He loves the Father. Mm-hmm. And what did he do? He made it possible for us to become partakers of the divine nature. He calls us mm-hmm. to actually join what he is mm-hmm. doing with the Father. Yeah. And if this is all about the heart, if this is all about faith, if this is lively mm-hmm. rather than um, rather than pharisaical, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm it's going to have elements of ambience, it's going to have elements of presence, and they might even be the atmosphere it breathes. But that doesn't mean that the moment that the guitars fade away, it stops. Mm-hmm. That means the worship which we continue in our marriage is an expression of the kingdom of God. It means the worship which we do as we ex- exult in our exposition is the kingdom of God. It's the way we show graciousness to someone who has not shown graciousness to us. Not because we've gritted our teeth; it's because mm-hmm. we find we find satisfaction in faith. Is the kingdom of God, mm-hmm. and I think what you're one of the helpful things you're bringing out in this in this live word, a word which is mm-hmm. is a buzzword at the moment, is you're putting muscles onto concepts.
1: Yeah. Well, the kingdom of God, you know, scripturally, you're absolutely right. It it it's um, first of all. The kingdom of God is within you. That is, that's where it begins, right? So, uh, you know, out of the heart, scripture says, spring the issues of life. Doesn't say spring some faith issues, some religious matters. Spring the issues of life. Yes. And so the transformation of the heart in its totality, the root of the, the heart is not the center simply of my emotions. The heart in the Bible is an equivalent of, of talking about the soul it's the it's the it's the core of the human person so when that's transformed the idea that we would limit that transformation to some uh, one aspect of our lives um is obviously uh to truncate the significance of the transformation and of the gospel if any man be in christ he is a new creature he's a new creation um and and that means right. that um you're, you're you're right we shouldn't we shouldn't limit this to well i'm i'm therefore i'm being intellectually transformed over here and this is going to give me a new thought life or simply this is going to give me a new emotional life or this is going to give me a new artistic life or this is only that's going to give me a new family life it does all of those things it transforms as the kingdom of god works itself out in our lives that is through the power and work of the holy spirit we're being conformed to christ every single it wasn't one aspect of jesus life that was affected by who he was and the ministry of the holy spirit it was the totality yeah, of it amen. and so it's our life in its totality now of course that does mean that's not just ethereal it does mean that jesus was very clear when he talked about um the kingdom of god for example as he expounds as he is the greater moses goes up onto the mountain and, and gives us the sermon on the mount um, and he expounds um, God's word, God's law, in a sense, Christ there is the living Torah, he does say that anyone who, um, uh, who, who does and teaches these things is great in the kingdom of heaven, and uh, whoever um, uh, denies these and teaches others to do likewise is least in the kingdom of heaven. In other words, it is possible for people to name the name of Christ, but not to live in obedience. Wow. Um, and so this is not simply something, well, I feel the kingdom, it's just right, inward. Right. No, it's that, I te- what, is the, what is the manifesto of the kingdom? The manifesto of the kingdom is, as Paul said uh, to the Ephesian elders really, I have not failed to make known to you the whole counsel of God. Mm-hmm. I'm free of the guilt of all men because I've made known to you the whole counsel of God. And so it's this sense of, nobody can, no Christian can read Ephesians 1, And Colossians 1, here is Christ, the creator of all things, visible, invisible, thrones, dominions, everything in this age. He's been given a name that's greater than any name in this age and in the age to come. You can't read Ephesians 1 and Colossians 1, this Christ who's been given head over all things to the church. He's the creator of all things. He's the sustainer of all things. He's the governor of all things. He's the ruler of all things. He's the king of all kings. He's the lord of all lords. He's been given to, as head of all things, to his church, that is, to his people, and then say, yes, that means this narrow aspect, institutional worship. That's where Jesus is lord, but nowhere else. (laughs) That would be a complete contradiction of everything Paul is saying there, right. and and the constitution of the kingdom of God is given to us in the Word of God, and they, the longest chapter in the Bible is a celebration of it. It's the Word of God. It's the Law of God. It's the, you know, the sin of the Pharisees, Ben, was not that they loved God's Word. The sin of the Pharisees, Jesus points out, is that they neither knew the Scriptures nor the power of God, mm-hmm. and they'd replaced human ideas and human tradition. They they and and Jesus says, you make the Word of God of no effect because you exalt your ideas, your traditions, over the Word of God. Mm. So we have to get away from this false dichotomy between the power and presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives, as you've said, Mm -hmm. with the idea that, well, that must be disjunct from the word of God then. No, it's the spirit who breathes life into that word so that we understand it, we embrace it, and we apply it. It's helpful, not least, because
0: you tend to find there is a popular reflex to say anything which does not come from spontaneity is legalism. Right. But what we're describing, it has a spontaneous element to it, but it also is described, it is describable. And that yes. is something which is, uh, which is attractive and very well worth considering and, and teasing out as we look at the text,
1: and useful. You've written up in a book called- the, the first one is a sort of larger tome, The Mission of God, a manifesto of hope for society. And uh, the little book that summarizes what we're talking about today is called Gospel Culture, That's the one. Living in God's Kingdom yeah. uh, by uh, Force Publications.
0: A very useful and suggestive uh, argument, especially for our time, where culture almost, as I can say, it can excuse uh, and it can uh, it can neuter potential for understanding between people, because no one really knows what they mean by the word. Yes, it's helpful to be able to tease out what it is that we mean by the word, mm. and then we can talk, and then we yeah. can see what in which direction would be the best way and to and rediscover well. the
1: richness and the scope of the gospel. And what my experience has been with people is that when they grasp um, that the gospel is a culture, uh, because it transforms hearts and restores us to true worship, we start to begin to see the, the glory and the majesty and the power of the gospel and the glory of the resurrection and ascension and session of Jesus Christ to the place of total authority. Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah, there you go. And it's all about Jesus. That's right. The third question I wanted
1: to ask you was,
0: what are you up to at the moment?
1: (laughs) Well, so that we don't have to spread this over too far, I'll I'll just summarise it for you as quickly as I can. So after my my years in RZIM um, and a lot of travel, I stepped out of that to plant a church in Toronto called Westminster Chapel, which you asked me about already. But we had a vision as well to establish um, uh, education, to to, to re-establish really Christian education um, in um, Toronto and Ontario. And uh, we so we began, a few years ago, Westminster Classical Christian Academy. Uh, So the the church is about 10 years old, the school is about four years old. At the same time that we planted the church, I established a uh, a, a cultural um, uh, apologetics ministry that's concerned with cultural philosophy and cultural theology called the Ezra Institute. And by the grace of God, we've seen the church grow. We have a pastoral team. We've seen the school grow. And we've started to see the institute grow as well. And actually, recently... Um, we uh, were given the ability to acquire our own centre, a 25-acre centre just outside of Toronto um, with a beautiful uh, mansion on it for us to do some of our own training in this area of uh, of cultural apologetics. Mm. So that's what I'm doing over there. In England, what I'm uh, most involved with is um, working with, uh, it's a privilege to work with um, Christian Concern, in particular in the area of trying to Uh, function as a kind of principal theologian to give some theological direction um, to the work and in particular to work uh, uh, in uh, guiding and directing the Wilberforce Academy. And the Wilberforce Academy is a project of Christian concern uh, which is hosted at Cambridge every September for one week. It's a kind of membership program where we bring uh, young people together who may be studying um, in in university because they're en route to a a vocation in the public space, Um, law, politics, medicine, um, business, media, arts, uh, uh, education, uh, who um, want to learn to think biblically, scripturally, Christianly about their vocation. So what does it mean to have a, a, a thoroughgoing christian worldview rooted in the lordship of jesus christ surrendered to the totality of his word how do we think about how the gospel how the lordship of jesus functions in in these vocations how do we apply it how do we release cultural leaders for the public space that's what the Warberforce academy is about hence the Before academy Warberforce, as you know then initially thought well i'll become a clergyman after his conversion and john newton said you know what maybe god's raised you up in the position he has as the, as the representative for York, as a friend of William Pitt, the Prime Minister, to serve him there. And then out of that, of course, grew the Clapham Sect and that network of evangelicals right across the country who influenced the nation for the gospel.
0: And the Wilberforce. Someone just typed into Google the Wilberforce Academy, or should they go to the Christian Concern website and then ask? Or uh,
1: you can find it going in either direction. So if you if you if um, uh, WilberforceAcademy.co.uk, I think, um, will take you to um, you'll find Wilberforce Academy and um, our and our website, and you'll be able to see the video. Um, but you will also you can also um, go onto the Christian Concern website and find it through there as well. Right. Sweet.
0: Um, finally, would love to come on to ask questions. What is it, what would your advice be, which is mm-hmm. as broad as you'd like to make it, for, whether it be for church planters or for yeah. uh, Christians in London generally, pastors, um, people yeah. without beards. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, so many things obviously could be said here. So, what could I say that um, uh, that could sort of tear this back and, and sort of distill it into a couple of a couple of pieces of advice. Um, the first one would would, would be um, very simply that transformed people uh, transform cultures. So at root um, because the gospel is a culture when Christ transforms you and he takes hold of you transformed people will transform the culture. And so recovering our confidence in the gospel, that if you are faithful, if you're a Christian, you're a pastor, you're a minister, you're a leader, and and even as a believer in any vocation, if you are faithful to Jesus Christ as Lord, and you you set him apart as Lord in your heart, that you allow the gospel to transform you, you will be a change agent, you will be transformative. It's the whole gospel for the whole of life. That is what I would wanna say first, that, embrace the whole of the gospel that is the whole of the word of god i'm not talking about some truncated modern narrow evangelical definition that the gospel is jesus died for your sins and wants you to go to heaven actually heaven, the, the new jerusalem comes down out of heaven into the earth okay it's the whole of god's word for a whole gospel for the whole of life recover your confidence in the lordship of jesus christ and the total gospel that is given to us in the totality of the word the whole counsel of god what would i do with that what would be what if i were to give one piece of advice to christians in britain today Um, in light of that what would it be those that govern the minds of the young govern the course of the future Hmm. there is a reason why the modern humanistic secular state puts so much emphasis so much money so much time so much um, uh, and is so protective of the field of education when you think about the great commission that god gives to his ch- the christ gives to his church it's an educational mandate go into all the world preach the gospel that is declare this total cosmic redemption it which is according to paul the reconciliation of all things to god we are now co-workers in that process of reconciliation the reconciliation of all things to god and we are now co-laborers with him that mandate is to preach and to teach everything i have commanded you and i'm with you always to the end of the age now notice that the great commission begins which people often forget with the declaration of christ's total lordship all authority in heaven and earth jesus says is mine notice all authority in heaven yes but all authority in earth that's why we're taught to pray by the lord jesus himself thy kingdom come Mm. thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven the kingdom of god is not something that's happening in eternity simply shunted off to the eschaton it's something that's present with us right now in christ by the power of the holy spirit in the gospel the kingdom of god is among you it's right here Its source is not this world. Its source is from beyond history in God himself, in the person of Christ. So we have this commission and it's an educational mandate. So if I had one bit of practical advice, because though Jesus said, let the children come to me of such is the kingdom of heaven. And given what I've said about 80 to 85% of our children from Christian homes being lost by the age of 23, we need to recover education. Christians need to recover education. First in our homes, in teaching our own children, instead of palming off responsibility for education to the church and saying, well, the youth pastor needs to do it. The, ch- the children's worker needs to do it. No, we as parents, we need to take responsibility. Train up a child in the way he should go, the scripture says. We're to talk about these things in, 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 when we sit down, when we rise up. That's the commandment of scripture to us, that it's in the home, That, we are the first educators. Parents are to teach their children. So that's the, in the first place, it's there. Then in the church, of course, we need to be teaching the whole counsel of God there. We need to be faithful in the educational mandate. And we need to establish again, Christian schools. Not to shelter, as I say, not to shield Christians from, and children from the nasty world out there. No, to equip them and prepare them to engage it. So that they can enter the public space and and so that eventually we can recover these great institutions the lord is my light and my salvation that was the motto of oxford university Mm. cambridge was a puritan university where are these institutions today they are lost Mm. in terms of the Christian worldview, in terms of the Gospel. And now everyone's recognising
0: that the folly that's coming out of the universities... The
1: folly that... exactly. And it's those that shape the minds of the young, that govern the course of the future. We only have to look at young people today to know what the future is going to be like. So we need desperately to recover the Great Commission, the educational mandate, and we need to do it in every sphere. Right. From the home, to the church, to the school, to the university.
0: Uh, interesting. Finishing up, perhaps on uh, Richard Baxter again, really, because there is a man buried a couple hundred yards from here, who the success of his ministry is measured in terms of the family worship happening in the homes. And of course, it's it starts again with the gospel, because mm-hmm. you've got uh, you've got fathers hearing. I know you're not qualified. I know you're not, but he has qualified you. You get right. his access. You get his righteousness. You get the freedom to come to him. And tell your children that, tell, encourage them in that. Find him in the text, find him in the scripture.
1: Yeah.
0: Uh, of course, our tendency is to write ourselves off, we're not ready, we're not ready. The gospel says, I know you're not, and I love,
1: and I, get, I provide, I... And Baxter I really... did what God put in his hand to do. I believe that Richard Baxter, because there was no doctor in the town, That's right. also um, taught himself medicine. That's right. and, and there's a lesson there in just, you know, what has what God put in your hand to do? You say, I can't, do. just, what is God, you know, don't wait for, the, for, for a clap of lightning uh, and, and, or, or having your backside burned by, 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 in a lightning storm like Luther. You can The word of God has been given to us. What is in our hand to do? Let's just do it. Let's do something with it now. Let's put it in. And God, God will steer a moving ship in the direction he wants it to go. But let's move in uh, the direction of obedience. That's right.
0: That's right. Well, that's a fantastic place to finish. Thank you so much for this, Joe. I I think you'll need to lie down now. It's been a (laughs) privilege to be on. Thanks for having me. Oh, bless you. Fantastic. Thank you so much.